Wow, I don't think the worship could have been any more uh, fitting for what we're going to be studying today, and that was tremendous, Chris. Great worship set, brother. I know I'm setting you up for next week. You have to keep trying to measure up, but that was a great time of worship, was it not? Uh, well, let's continue worshiping as we go through the Word, and uh, let's pray for God's favor to be on us today. Let's pray together. Father, Lord, we come before you now, and we thank you for the grace and the mercy and the 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 favor that you have bestowed upon us through your son, Jesus. And as I just think about that song, Lord, that is the cry of our heart, Lord, with, with thy church abide. Keep our, our, our life and doctrine pure, Lord. That is the cry of our heart, and we just ask that you would be with us now and use the scripture now to that end. But Father, I pray for every heart in here that you would, that you would show us, Lord, uh, wonderful things from your law that we would look at your word and that we would see just how serious the injunction of Hebrews is and how we ought to respond in like manner with true saving faith. And Father, I pray today this is a text of self-examination, that you would try our hearts, test our hearts as the psalmist declared, that you would test our hearts to see if there be any wicked way in us. And Lord, help us to come into conformity with your word. And we pray, O oh God, by the power of your spirit, sanctify us, we pray. Conform us into the image of your son, Jesus. For that is who we long to be like, like your son, Jesus, in every respect. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, this is going to be a, a two-part sermon that I've entitled, Living in Light of the Promise living in light of the promise. And so I thought it was very fitting for us to sing about that promise in our worship. But you see there in the text before you that it is the promise that the author of Scripture is calling the, the people to live a life of faith, a life of patience, patiently waiting and then obtaining the promise. And so we are to live our lives in like manner always and constantly in light of the promise that looms over us and that is set out for us. What a glorious thing to have this promise given to us. And so we need to ask a series of questions, namely, what is this promise and what is it like? Because if you look at the way the passage develops here, in verse 12 we are told of promises, that is plural. But in verse 13 he shifts to the singular. And so then we need to ask, is the promise the same thing as the promises? Or is there one promise over, overarching all sorts of little promises and binding them together? These are the kind of questions that we want to seek to ascertain as we go through this passage of Scripture. But really, the author is going to give us several things here to consider. Remember the context that we just came out of, namely verses 4 to 6 in the book of Hebrews, verses 4 to 6, where the author was concerned above everything with the issue of apostasy, apostasy, which is a very a serious and very sober warning to the church. And now what the author of Hebrews is going to do is he's going to give us a qualification. As a matter of fact, he's going to give us four things, and these are four things that are easy to note because they all begin with the letter C, at least in my outline. Number one, he's going to give us a qualification unto his warning of apostasy. Number two, he's going to elucidate for us the importance of caring for one another. 
And then number three, he's going to call the church to imitation in general. And he is going to cite the example of Abraham as a paradigm for what it means to live in light of the promise. But first, let's begin theologically with the issue of apostasy, because in verse 9, as you may have noted, he gives a clarifying word on the issue of apostasy. You remember that the author begins with a a word there in verse 6 about going towards maturity, and that were those that were theologically lazy, theologically sluggish, and that was a warning to the church to say, listen, you need to be headed in the right direction, because if you don't, if you don't head in the right direction, you will head in the wrong direction. That's because in the Christian life, you can't be stagnant, stale. You can't put it in neutral. You will go somewhere. There is a trajectory that you are presently on. And so what the author, the pastor here of Hebrews wants to display to them is that if you press on to maturity, then what you have to look forward to is assurance. And he makes that plain in verse 9. He says, Beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you. He says, things that accompany salvation, though we have been speaking in this way. So although the church was immature, although the church was in a state of infancy, although the church had been neglecting the Word of God, neglecting the Scriptures, even though they've been stagnant, if you would, in their Bible study, even though he says they're infants, even though he needs to teach them again the ABCs of Christianity, he still regards them as beloved. He says, beloved, which is a, t- a term of endearment on the part of the pastor towards his flock, to say he loves them, he, they are his beloved. Everything that he has been talking about has been motivated out of love. And how many pastors today are, motiv- are motivating their people through hard truth out of love? And that's, that's part of the calling of, of, of true, genuine, biblical, pastoral ministry. It is not just giving people what they want to hear. It is not just setting out in front of them fluff and putting only comfortable things, or to use the language of Jeremiah, speaking smooth words to the congregation. No, sometimes the words are rough and jagged and sharp, and sometimes the words are downright hard and difficult. We looked at a very hard, difficult passage in verses 4 through 6, which spoke about the impossibility of renewing a person to repentance once they have fallen, fallen away in the nature in which this passage has been describing. But the pastor loves them. And I can honestly say, brothers and sisters, in this church, the singular motivation of my heart is to see people mature theologically and in their sanctification. That's my concern. My concern is not to grow a big church. My concern is not to get a nice building. This building is nice enough for me. I don't know about you. I don't need anything better than this. But the principal concern is not to have a popular church. It's not to have a trendy church. It's not to have a church that people like. It's to have a church filled with people who are genuinely pursuing the living God. And that is the pastor's heart in this text 
right here. He, he has this pastoral concern. He longs for them to know the depths of God's truth, the depths of God's word. Oh, it's almost as if he's saying, oh, there is so much more for you to learn. There is so much more that I want to show you, but there is a problem. You've become dull of hearing. You're stagnant. You have been stunted in your growth, but that doesn't stop the pastor from moving them on to grow. If anything else, it probably fueled his passion to see this church grow, even more so that they're in this state. And look at now, the author here says that what he has been talking about does not, apparently, based on verse 9, what he has been talking about in terms of apostasy does not accompany salvation. And that is plain to see. You remember the metaphor in verses 7 through 8? There are two types of soils that are represented for us there. There is the soil that is blessed and there is the soil that is cursed. And the blessed soil is the one that receives the rain, receives, in other words, truth, the gospel, light. It receives revelation, and it responds in genuine saving faith. And then there is the soil representing our hearts, as Jesus taught us. There is the soil that is hard. There is the soil that is not responsive. There is the soil that does not receive the rain of God's revelation and goodness, all the things that he describes there in verse 4, this idea of the uh, being enlightened and tasting of the heavenly gift and having been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and tasting the good word of God and the powers of the age to come so that you can be exposed to all of this gospel light and still be lost. That's his point. But he says, that he is convicted. There is an inward conviction. There is a bearing witness to the fact that these folks do possess genuine salvation. So he says that he is certain of better things for them. Better, better, better. The word better, kraton in the Greek, is an important theological term in the book of Hebrews. There's a lot of stuff in Hebrews that's better. Did you know that? Matter of fact, you could say the whole book of Hebrews is the book about what is better. That'll get you thinking, then how do I interpret the book of Hebrews? How do I interpret Hebrews in terms of the things that are better? What's better? I'll give you the list. Number one, chapter one, verse four, Christ is better than the angels. Chapter seven, verse 19, the new covenant gives you better hope than the law. Chapter 7, verse 22, the, the, the new covenant gives a better, more permanent covenant than the old. Uh, chapter 9, verse 23, the sacrificial cleansing of the, old, uh, of the new covenant is better than the old covenant. Chapter 10, verse 34, we have a better heavenly inheritance. And chapter 11, verse 35, we will attain to a better resurrection. It is all about what is better. And what is better speaks of that which is superlative, which is superior, that which is of a better status, of a better kind of thing. And so the experience that he's talking about here is better. And therefore, it corresponds to verse 7. That is the better soil. For, watch this, verse 7. For the ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled receives a blessing from God. 
That is the better soil. That's the soil that you want to represent your heart. It is better than the soil that is hard and that is not responsive to the things of God. Now, on a practical level, on a practical level, when we're dealing with the issue of assurance, because that is what he's providing for them. He's providing them assurance that they have things that are better than the apostasy that he just described, namely genuine salvation. But when it comes to genuine salvation, and when it comes to the things that are better, the things that provide us with assurance, my dear friends, you have no better friend than fruit. Evidence, right? If it yields forth vegetation, there's the fruit in verse 7. And that is exactly what he's going to be talking about here. The fact that fruit, visible manifestation, that you have been internally changed by the gospel, that ought to produce a level of assurance in your life and in mine that is to a certain level infallible. Which means that the Spirit, Romans chapter 8, verse 15 and 17, the Spirit is testifying with your spirit that you are a child of God. Could there be anything more comforting than that? And conversely, nothing will erode your assurance like the lack of fruit, the lack of productivity. If you are stagnant in your Christian life, you can probably expect to be riddled with doubt in the process. In the process. Listen to what he says here, the phrase here when he says, though we are speaking in this way, you see that in the text? In chapter 6, verse 9, he says, Though we are speaking in this way. I see that not as a throwaway sentence, but I see that as a reference to the fact that it is necessary for our perseverance that we be exhorted, that we be warned in this, in this way, that we be presented with the peril of apostasy. This is the way that God is going to persevere us until the end. It was Jesus himself who said, those that persevere to the end will be saved. Brothers and sisters, that is a promise, but it's also a warning. It is a promise to us that if we persevere to the end, we will be saved. But it's also a warning that if we don't persevere to the end, for whatever reason, whatever her name was called, whatever his name was called, whatever the, the dollar amount was, whatever the, whatever the job position was, whatever the vanity that was dangled in front of your face was, whatever it was, what Jesus says, whatever a man will give in, in exchange for his soul, it will be in the end, not worth it. But that shows you the prospect of apostasy. And it shows you the necessity for you and I, for our souls, for the good of our souls to be warned with the type of warning that Hebrews gives us. Now, enduring faith is full and it is productive. And I think that's really the burden of this passage to show that genuine salvation produces fruit. It's that simple. We can end this in the sermon there, but then I wouldn't have any fun, so we'll keep going. Genuine salvation produces genuine fruit. It's that simple. 
genuine salvation. We receive the blessings that are given to us, and then we cultivate those blessings until we have a sincere heart that is full of faith. Turn with me to chapter 10 for me to show you this. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 19, to show you this full assurance that is reserved for those who have genuinely entered into the new covenant through Jesus Christ, through our mediator, through the work of the high priest. Look at verse 19. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated through us, uh, for us through the veil, that is his flesh. Isn't that a remarkable? The broken body of Jesus, the torn, ripped apart, beaten down, sacrificed, blood-shedding body of Jesus becomes, as it were, the veil of the Holy of Holies so that when it is torn, it ushers us into the very presence of God. Amazing. Amazing. He says here that we have a great high priest over the house of God. Verse 22, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Well, that's probably a reference both to the typological cleansing of the Old Testament, but probably also an allusion to, the, to baptism, the phenomenon of baptism and what it represents. He says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Isn't that glorious? No wavering. Dear friends, listen, this smacks in the face of culture today. This runs in the face of academia today, of intellectual discussion today that says that doubt is good, that doubt is noble. I was talking to a uh, Roman Catholic a gentleman down at University of North Texas, where he told me, he said to me, it is prideful to say that you have assurance of faith. I said, no, 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 it's not prideful, it's biblical. The Bible says we ought to approach God with full assurance of faith. Let us hold fast our confession without wavering, no wavering about what we believe, because when he says the confession of our hope, he's referring to the gospel truth. And so therefore, this admonition is for us to stay faithful to the gospel. This is calling for gospel fidelity in our lives. For he who promised is faithful. It means no matter how tired you get of holding on to the confession, no matter how tired you get of staying faithful to the end, the overarch, the banner that should reside over our lives is God is faithful. Why do we persevere? Why do we endure? Why do we do it? We don't do it for other people. We don't do it so that you can gain the approval of the pastor or someone next to you or your family or your parents or anybody else. You do it first and foremost because you know God is faithful and what He promised, He will fulfill. The door of paradise will be open to us. Oh, I was thinking about this. 
The inexplicable nature of the Christian life is this, that we stand on the precipice of everlasting joy, unspeakable, unspeakable, unfathomable joy, bliss. It will be so much joy that God will have to uphold you just so that you can enjoy it. How about that kind of joy? So much joy that God will have to give you a new body or you wouldn't be able to stand it. That's how much joy. He wipes away the tears from our eyes in Revelation 21 because if he did not, we would weep for all eternity at what we are about to see. The beauty of the Lord, the King in His beauty, highly exalted. And when you see it as Isaiah saw it in that body, what did Isaiah do? He fell to the ground. He was undone, overwhelmed, overcome. He said, I'm dead. I'm dead. It's over with. There's no way that I can stand in the presence of what I'm in the presence of. Do you believe that? Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. You know what he's saying when he says that? It's more than just Jesus can convert you. It's more than that. Jesus is saying, I am going to usher you in to resurrection status. Well, you will possess a resurrected body. All your diseases gone. All your troubles over. All your fears vanquished. All your disappointments gone forever. And Jesus says, do you believe this? I love it. When you read the book of John there in uh, John chapter 11, when Jesus says that, many scholars believe that John designed that for the reader so that when you read it in this sense, when you read the words of the narrative, the text is meant to grab a hold of you. So that, yes, he was talking to Martha, but what about you, reader? Do you believe this? This is the confession that we have to hold on to to the end. If we want it said of us, better things are said of you. Things that actually accompany salvation. And now he's going to get into one evidence of things that accompany salvation because God is faithful, remember? Remember, God is faithful? Look at verse, nine, or verse 10, back in Hebrews 6, verse 10. He says, For God is not unjust as to forget. There's the faithfulness. He is not unjust. chaos. He is not an unjust God so that He forgets. Are you forgetful? Are you forgetful of things that people do for you? Are you forgetful of the nice things that people have done for you in the past? Kids, and all of us. How forgetful are we? How do we so quickly forget the love that our mother showed to us? I mean, for crying out loud, she took care of us when we were just a screaming, you know, uh, dirty little baby that needed their diaper changed. And how quick we forget what our mother did for us when we were little. But God doesn't forget. 
even if the mother forgets the child of her youth, God doesn't forget you. It's amazing. This is the covenant faithfulness of God. But look what it says. He doesn't forget two things are referenced here. Your work, Kai, and the love which you have shown toward his name. This is remarkable. And let, let me just finish it. In having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. There is so much there for the nature of the Christian life that if you don't have exegetical eyes to see, you will run right over this text not knowing this text is here to change your life. I really, truly, genuinely believe that now that I've spent some time on this. Evidence that one has become a participant of the new covenant is his fruitful service in the church. That is what verse 10 is really talking about. He says, I am convinced of better things concerning you. But he gives us two things here, as I said. He gives us outward deeds and inward motives. First, our outward deeds so that he is convinced there is a certain level of self-evident truth in their life so that he is absolutely convinced, absolutely certain, there's no question about it, that they are children of God. He doesn't even need to say anything. Turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians Chapters 1 and 2 have been often looked upon as the paradigm for church ministry, biblical ministry, pastoral ministry par excellence. That this is excellent ministry being shown to us in chapter 1, chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians because Paul just goes on and on and on about the nature of true, genuine gospel ministry. But he does commend the church for this exact thing that Hebrews is talking about. Look with me in verse 8. He says, For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you. That's the church. You there is plural. From the church. Not only in Macedonia and Achaia, he says, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. Isn't that remarkable? Does that describe your Christianity? No need to say anything about this brother. <laughs> this brother, this sister, their faith is self-evident. Their reputation precedes them. Their love for Jesus Christ is so self-evident, we don't need to build it up. We don't, know to, we don't need to try to make it something it's not. It's just so self-evidently fruitful and right and good. It's spilling over everywhere they go. People know this person is a believer. This is a testimony of a church. That's why I love the evangelism of our church, because our reputation precedes us in that way, sometimes to our peril, at least as far as our reputation goes, but yeah, we cause trouble. Sorry, I mean, open-air preaching is not very popular, but neither is door-to-door -door ministry. We got in trouble once. I better watch out. This is being recorded. So we got in trouble once in this church but going door-to-door, -door, people complained about something with door-to-door. -door. So it's, like, it's not safe to evangelize. It's not safe. Suburban American Christianity is all about stay to yourself. Don't invade my personal space. And um, it is the demise of American evangelicalism, really. The self-individualized, personalized, 
bite-sized, pocket-sized Jesus that I'll keep to myself, thank you very much. It is, it is a travesty. He says here that he remembers their work, their work. Now, there is two clues that I want to point you to in terms of Hebrews of what this ministry to the saints, which I think really the work is talking about, probably more specifically, exegetically, if we want a one-to-one correspondence, the work, what is it talking about? He's probably talking about two uh, uh, passages, two events that are recorded, actually, in the book of Hebrews. So again, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10 to see the first one. Because the work in view probably has to do with their willingness to maintain fellowship with the church in hard times. In hard times. Look at verse 32 of chapter 10. Remember the former days after being enlightened. So there's that that term enlightened being used both of false converts and genuine converts. He says because they were real, true gospel privileges. You endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers, here we go, with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners, what? The prisoners, and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. You want to talk about otherworldly. <laughs> I wonder what Christianity in Frisco looks like if you seize people's property. Where's your Christianity now when your home is taken away, when your SUV is taken away, etc., etc.? They joyfully endured this with joy. In other words, they had a transcendent gospel joy that taking away their material possessions could not touch. Could not touch. Knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. This is why we ought to live a little bit crazy in the Christian life. Because we have a possession, an enduring, lasting possession that can never be taken away by anything, as Paul says in Romans chapter 8. Nothing, neither sword, nor peril, nor famine, nor nakedness, nor nor any other created thing, nor nothing in the world, nor nothing in the next world. Nothing can take away your possession that you have in Christ. Therefore, live radical. Live on the edge. Take risks with the gospel. I know this is very John Piper-esque, but this is where he gets it from, right here. This is what he gets it from. So they were willing to serve the church even under the threat and even in the reality, apparently, of persecution, of persecution. Now, the persecuted church has no problem whatsoever identifying with this verse. We who stand in the West looking to the east and the persecuted church, we have a difficult time because there's a disconnect, meaning you have never seen one of your loved ones killed in front of your face and been told, renounce Christianity, embrace Islam, or I will shoot your mother or your father or your brother. This is not far-fetched. You know, many years ago, I got the blessed privilege of going to Uganda, ministering to a million, a million Sudanese refugees, fleeing persecution from Sudan, and almost everyone I talked to had this kind of story. 
Yes, the, the Muslims killed my mother. They killed my father. I had one boy who had a group of us men sitting around with pastors and missionaries, 12 years old, had us sobbing like little babies as he's telling us his testimony because the Muslims forced him to take up an AK-47 and kill his whole family. So for us, this is hard for us to connect with. For them, it's not. It's everyday reality. It is as real as the, the restaurant that you and I are about to go to after this church service. But this church was committed to the church even in that situation, this work. But there's also an invisible, inward, existential component. There is the outward works, the visible works, but there's also an inward, visible, heartfelt component, and that is the word love. Go back to Hebrews chapter 6 with me again to see this. He says, For God is not unjust to forgive your work and the love which you have shown, watch this, toward His name. Isn't that remarkable? So, we move from the outward to the inward, and the inward is important because it means, brothers and sisters, that God wants our heart. He doesn't just want our religious duties. He doesn't need you to come here and to prepare coffee. Sorry, Felix. <laughs> but I know that Felix does it, right, brother? <laughs> With a heart of love. And God bless him, he does. He never complains. He always does it. Most of you don't even know that he does it, but he does it most of the time. Ask Scott Beatty. He'll tell you how faithful he is or is not to that task. But he doesn't need us to come here and play guitar. He doesn't just need us to come up here and read a sermon manuscript. He wants us to love it. Because if you don't love it, then all you are is a shell. All you are is a religious shell with no life inside. And Jesus says, oh, yeah, these people, they, they, they draw near to me with their lips, but their heart, that's another matter. Their heart's somewhere else. Their heart is wandering, wavering. Their heart is more obsessed with the things that they own than with the living God. And so the love component, so I'm jumping up and down on that word love because I think it is, it is emblematic of that inward heart motive that we, that we have. I talk about taking the Lord's Supper. And yes, what a time for us to prepare our hearts to be genuine when we partake of the elements to have our hearts ready. Say, oh, we come blessing the Lord at His table, but cursing our brother or sister when we walk out the door. Brethren, these things ought not to be. It's that simple. Religious hypocrisy is toxic to the soul. It undermines fellowship. It pollutes worship. It cripples prayer, it empties our joy, it deflates assurance, it hinders our progress in the gospel, and it's something that we have to fight against at all costs. That's why the author of Hebrews, you remember going all the way back to chapter 3, verse 12, he attacks our heart. He attacks our heart. 
He doesn't just attack the outward manifestation of our Christianity. He gets to the heart of it all. He says, beware, brethren, that there not be in in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. How does a person go from one day serving in the church, being a deacon or a pastor in the church, to the next day wanting nothing to do with the church? It doesn't happen on that day. It happened a long time ago when the heart became evil and unbelieving. You see what I mean by a shell? You can do all the right things outwardly, but inwardly, if you are full of dead men's bones, you are dead. And so you better, beloved, you better keep love to Christ alive. You better have that love to the unseen Christ alive. The Apostle Paul put it very bluntly at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 33. The Apostle Paul says, if anybody does not agape Christ, if he does not love Christ, let him be anathema, accursed. Wow! Wow. Are you forcing me to love somebody? No, not really. It's just saying that if you don't love somebody, it is indicative that you are not really or ever were really in love with that person. That you didn't really love Christ. Maybe you fell in love with religion. Maybe you fell in love with the veneer of American evangelicalism and tradition and being safe in a Christian home and safe in a Christian family, but there was no true, genuine religious affection in your heart for Christ. Okay, let's move on to the orientation. So, he gives us the nature of our fruit bearing, both outward and inward, and then he gives us an orientation of our fruit bearing, and this orientation is both human and divine. Look at the text again. God is not unjust as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward His name. That's one. And then he says, in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. That's two. So, love to His name, ministry to the saints, human and divine. This is what our fruit bearing is all about. We have to be committed to the God, to, 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 to God's name. Now, some of you are scratching your head, and you're like, do you mean like we got to say Jesus a lot or something? What, what do you mean name, Right? In some churches, in some expressions, you would think that's the case, right? Just repeat the name of the Lord a lot or something. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Pentecostal churches tend to do that a lot, right? (laughs) In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, right? (laughs) That's not what it's talking about. Whenever the Bible talks about the name of God, what it's referring to is God in the sum total of His attributes. Everything that God is. Why is that important? Because today, brothers and sisters, people don't want God as He is. They want a God as they want Him to be. They want a God that that doesn't send them trials. They want a God that doesn't send them disease or trouble. They want a God that won't keep them in financial duress for too long. No, no, the God that many people have in their imagination is a God that is always for the things that they are for, 
They want a God that is there to meet their needs, to keep them healthy and wealthy and prosperous at all times. And a little hiccup here and there, well, that's understandable, but overall, God better make my life really good or else that's not the kind of God I want to worship. We have to be very careful. We have to be very careful of conceiving of God being a God who will not allow your children to be hurt, a God who will not allow calamity to befall us, a God who is always on your side of your plans, on your timetable. He is always on your schedule. He answers prayers the way that you want Him to answer your prayers. He gives you the people, the person, the relationship, the, the, the career, the money that you want. Oh, no, 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 no. Don't forget, brothers and sisters, what James tells us in James chapter 4, that when we plan in this way, this presumptuous way, he says, all such things are evil. Right? But we ought to say, if God wills, we will do this and that. Say, we want the God who is. This is what it means by love for His name, love for God as He has revealed Himself in Scripture. That is another matter altogether for many, many people. For many people. The author is recalling their love for God's covenant self-disclosure. And more important, the fact that God does not forget their love. That's so beautiful. Let me read to you something. Micah 7.18, who is a God like you who pardons iniquity, who passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever, but he delights in unchanging love. This is the covenant love of God that we're looking at. But he also zeroes in on our commitment to the people of God. And for this I want you to turn with me to 1 John chapter 2, verse 10, because it's one thing to say, oh, yes, I love God. I love God as He is. I, I love the Lord. But as John, who is the apostle of love, as John has taught us, a lot of times the barometer of whether or not you actually love God, not just say that you love God or think that you love God, but actually love God, sometimes the barometer of that is whether or not you love His people. 1 John chapter 2. Let me rattle off some of these verses. 1 John 2.10, the one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. Chapter 3, verse 14. Chapter 3, verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brethren. See that? He who does not love abides in death. Chapter 4, verse 7. Chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And anyone who loves, who, who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. See how basic, how basic the principle really is, this agape principle that the measure of your love for one another is a testament to whether or not you actually possess the knowledge of God. 
whether you've actually come into relationship, into communion with the God who is himself love. He is the essence of love, in other words. We wouldn't know love if God did not reveal his love to us. One more, John, this is out of the Gospel of John. I can just read it to you. You know this one. John 13, 35. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Oh, this is why we ought to come to church and just be so glad to see each other. This is why it's so disturbing when people don't get along in the church because it is a contradiction to everything that we're saying that we have been touched by a God of love, that we worship a God of love, that we know the love of God, but then we come to church and we can't stand each other. I'm not speaking of anybody here or our church in particular, but just overall, it's, it's a biblical issue. In Philippians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul says, I think it's in verse 3, that two women in the church who were not getting along, needed to get along. <laughs> because they had the potential, these two ladies, two ladies, cute, adorable, nice, godly ladies in the church, if they don't get along, the whole church could get messed up. I've seen it. I've seen what two people not getting along in a church can do. Sides become drawn. Families start forming allegiances. And the next thing you know, some stupid little spat on Facebook is now dividing an entire congregation of 100 or 200 people. This is where we need to be on our guard. He says, I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Philippians 4.3, indeed, True companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel. These are fellow workers with Paul, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. He's telling the pastors, hold everything. If these people aren't loving each other, getting along with each other, this is going to greatly inhibit the cause of the gospel and the effectiveness of this church. And so... How long do we love one another for? How long are you stuck with me for? <laughs> well, the last thing I want to point out to you out of Hebrews, because I'm certain that you're hungry, is what it says there at the end of verse 10, where he says, not only love to the name of God, but also it is expressed in one another ministry, having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. So, he gives us the duration of this fruit as well. Not just the nature of it, the fact that it consists both of an inward and an outward reality, not just the orientation of it, the fact that you love God and you love man, but he also gives you the duration of it, the fact that it begins and it goes on and on and on into eternity where we will love with unsinning heart. I don't think we could ever even conceive of that here on earth, to love with unsinning heart. But we are called to have something of it here. 
We are called to love one another with this genuine agape love, and it is to begin, and it is to go on and on and on. Look at the words that he uses here. He says, again, he says, in having ministered. This is why the NASB is so important, or a little translation like the ESV, so important because the tenses of the Greek verbs have to be drawn out. Having ministered speaks of an aorist tense of something that happened in the past. It begun, in other words, with their conversion, but then he switches it to a present active participle, which means it is also ongoing reality that doesn't end. It is a habitual practice of the Christian life that goes on and on and on until the day that you die. You are called to love one another, to be committed to one another, and so for that reason, I want to put a plug in now for the reality that is church membership. This is why church membership is so important. If you have a Christianity outside of the context of the formal membership of the church, which the, the Hebrews did not, according to Hebrews chapter 12, I think it's verse 25, or verse, let me, before I botch it, let me just go there. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 23. They understood what it meant to be enrolled in the church as members of a church. And you see, membership is a wonderful thing. I grew up in a non-membership environment. I grew up being told membership is bad, it's legalistic, it's controlling, it's, uh, it's, over, it's overbearing, it's heavy-handed. No, it's biblical. And it's all over the pages of Scripture if you understand what the people are saying in terms of their accountability to the church. And that's why the Bible knows nothing of a rogue Christianity where a Christian is just out on their own, doing their own thing, having their own little Bible study, apart from any oversight, apart from any accountability, to the formal, disciplinary, authoritarian institution called the church. So this is Christianity for grown-ups that we're talking about here. When you enter into membership with the church, you're saying, I am getting accountable. And such a glorious thing, is it not? It's so safe. It's safe to know there are pastors that are watching out for my soul, watching out for me, watching over me, teaching me. I'm accountable to them. There's counseling. There's an over and an under relationship. And we serve the Lord together. But when you get out of that biblical paradigm, what do you have? You have a nebulous sort of ecclesiology where you're sort of free-floating on your own, not knowing what, where, where is Christ's authority found in your life. Because I have news for you, friends. The authority of Jesus Christ is invested in only one institution on planet Earth, and it is not the missions agency. It's not Gospel for Asia. It is not Voice for the Martyrs. I love those parachurch organizations. Don't hear, me, don't, don't hear what I'm not saying or don't... Don't misunderstand me. Parachurch organizations are great. Seminaries are wonderful. But they do not bear the authority of the local church. Isn't it amazing? Jesus Christ, he decided to put his authority not in an institution full of scholars. He put it in a little flock comprised of elders and deacons and members and people to love one another. 
That's why a good seminary does not engage in baptism. Southern Seminary with Al Mohler, they're not going to baptize you over there. They'll tell you to go to your local church. They're not going to participate of the Lord's Supper. And if they do, they will do it in a church-like fashion and follow the paradigm of the local church. See, that's what I want for, our, for, for us to understand who we are as the church. This is a small church, which means we have a perfect, perfect opportunity to get it, to understand what the church in the eyes of God really is. That this is a family, that this is an organism, that this is a temple that God is building, and that we are to be building ourselves into that temple as living stones, like Peter says, that we are to be thriving, we're to be sharing, we're to be loving and caring and pouring ourselves out. Paul told the Philippians, one more text. I knew I shouldn't have closed my Bible. One last text. I know that um, I'm supposed to follow the whole, this is how you do church, 40 minutes, that's it, no more, pray, sing the song. But I care more about to show you this stuff. Look at um, Philippians chapter 4. Um, oh boy, I hope I don't mess it up. Oh, there it is. Philippians chapter 2, okay. Philippians chapter 2, verse 17. Uh, the apostle Paul says, but even if I am being poured out as a drink offering, you know what he's talking about there? He's talking about martyrdom. He says, even if I'm about to die, even if I'm about to be mur murdered, even, even if I'm going to face a, a capital punishment for preaching the gospel, even if I've got to put my head on a chopping block for your sake, he says, it's a, it's a drink offering. <laughs> this is crazy, right? This guy's talking about martyrdom for crying out loud, and he's referring to it as worship. He's more zealous than the person that is going to put him to death. And he's saying, it is a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your, Philippians, faith. This is what sacrificial commitment to the church looks like. It's, it's exactly what John says, willing to lay our life down for one another if need be. And we think about that as, oh, yeah, making a lot of sacrifices for each other, you know, like secretly, you know, giving to each other and blessing each other with a, a gift card to their favorite restaurant. That's part of it. I don't want to diminish that. But some folks, in some contexts, as I've pointed out, um, it, it costs a lot more than that. It's a willingness to identify with people that, that are going to cause you possibly to lose your life just by virtue of identifying with them. So anyway, for whatever reason, God in His providence had me talk about persecution. Um, persecution is increasing even here in America through all, all sorts of things. The, the homosexual agenda, radical Islam, the taking away religious liberties, those kind of things. It's happening. It's coming. So what? The history of the church, Christians have always suffered. It is only the pompous American evangelical Disneyland Christianity that has this fantasy in their minds that think that we're going to be in this utopian habitat with everybody and everybody's just going to love our Jesus and love our Christian convictions and everything should be just fine and dandy, right? The Bible says we are in a militant state 
as Christians in this world. We're kingdoms of two, we're, we're, we're citizens of two kingdoms. But in this kingdom, the kingdom of man, expect opposition. All those who desire to live godly will be persecuted, Paul says. Okay, pray with me. Father, Lord, test the commitment of our heart to the body of Christ, Lord, we pray. You would test our hearts to see, Lord, the level of devotion that we have first to your name and secondly to one another. And Lord, we pray that you would increase the love that we have in our heart for you, that we would truly love you as you are, not as we want you to be, but as you have revealed yourself to be in Scripture, all for your glory, all for your name. In Jesus' name, amen.